0: From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Benker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives about men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. So a couple of quick announcements. First, if you're not aware that the Suzanne Benker Show is now on YouTube, and you'd like to watch it rather than just hear it, you can do that. You can also make comments about the episode if you hear something and feel the burning need to share your thoughts, as I usually do. Audio-only podcasts don't allow for that, obviously, so if that is something that's important to you, you can do that now. Just go to my YouTube channel, and while you're there, don't forget to hit subscribe. I have also now broadened my coaching options. If you're in a relationship and wondering whether or not you should stay or go, or if you're engaged or newly married and you want to make sure you don't wind up divorced like so many people you know, just go to SuzanneBanker.com forward slash coaching and scroll down to the bottom for those options. And of course, if you're interested in a marriage coaching package, those options are there as well. Again, that's SuzanneBanker.com forward slash coaching. Okay, and finally, one more thing. Don't skip over this part because you're going to want to hear this. If you're a listener of the Suzanne Venker Show, then you know all too well that modern marriage is a mess and traditional dating is dead. Men and women have never been more in the dark about how to build a relationship that lasts. There are many reasons for this sad state of affairs, but there's simply no question that modern women in particular need a detox from the cultural narratives they've absorbed about men and marriage. And they need a whole new roadmap for how to be successful in love. Fortunately, they now have that. My new book, How to Get Hitched and Stay Hitched, outlines four main lies the culture tells and offers women who want to get married and stay married a 12-step program that will lead to their success in this domain. How to Get Hitched is available at Amazon now for pre-order. And pre-orders matter. They're a great indication of consumer interest. So if people, if a lot of people order a book, then retailers are more likely to keep more copies in stock. So please, please head over to Amazon and type in how to get hitched. It is the antidote you or your daughter needs to reject the lies you've been fed by our culture about men, about sex, about marriage, about work and about family. It's about what you really want versus what you've been told you should want. And it's about what's true of men in marriage versus what you've been told is true. Again, that's How to Get Hitched and Stay Hitched, a 12-step program for marriage-minded women, available at Amazon now for pre-order. So today we're going to talk about victimhood and what that mentality does to people and to society in general. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that America has become a society of victims. My next guest, Adam Coleman, just released a new book entitled Black Victim to Black Victor, where he outlines all of the ways in which the black community have been conditioned to believe they are oppressed and how black women in particular have fallen for feminism to the detriment of their families and even themselves. Adam and I discuss the fatherless epidemic, the arrogance of white progressives and how the black community can heal and empower themselves. He will also share his own personal story about growing up with a single mom and even being homeless at times. I was so impressed with Adam's bravery and desire to identify the true source of our nation's problems, rather than simply repeat cultural narratives that are designed to free people from taking any responsibility for themselves and their actions. Okay, welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me. So nice to talk with you. So excited. So excited. Okay, I would like to begin by having you just tell people how they can find, how they can find you and your book and why you wrote it.
1: Sure. So uh, my book, Black Victim to Black Victor, uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, I'm also doing, uh, for the time being, some signed copies, so you can go to www.blackvictimtovictor.com and you can purchase through uh, our website uh, if you would like a a copy of a signed, personalized copy for myself. Um, As far as why I wrote the book, I wrote the book. um, Well, I had different motives for writing the book. So I originally wanted to write the book to leave something behind for my son. Um, you know, he's, he was becoming a teenager at the time. I wanted to write something uh, maybe like two or three years ago, but I had no idea what to write about. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, some guy in Minnesota had a knee in his neck and the conversation that stemmed from George Floyd's death resulted in me looking at the people around me and seeing how unhealthy of a conversation that was actually coming from it. Uh, It went from this one unfortunate incident into the narrative that we're all in danger, a narrative that says, because I am black, and, and especially because I'm a man, I'm always in danger by someone wearing a badge. Now, as someone who's lived in five different states and multiple towns within these states, and I've been in majority white neighborhoods plenty of times, I'd never felt this particular danger, yet I am supposed to live my life in fear and paranoia because of this narrative. And um, George Floyd's incident really pushed me to actually, for one, find my own voice and find out, am I the only one that feels this way? Um, And part of the problem was the discourse on many uh, social media networks wasn't of the discourse where you could have that healthy debate It was very emotional and um, toxic. And so that's when I sought to find other places, other alternatives to speak with other people. And when I ran into uh, people who happened to be conservatives or independents, or even your classical liberal, um, however, which way you want to define it. And they were questioning the narrative as well. So I knew that I wasn't alone in how I felt, and I needed to have a way to express myself. And when I first started writing this book, it was coming from a place of anger and frustration. But as I wrote and the more I researched, the more I was empathetic and I understood why we're in the place that we're in, the amount of manipulation that leads for all these people to feel this particular way. And so my anger turned into empathy because you know, there are greater powers at hand. Um, and, and I like to talk about the elite Uh, They come in all different colors and, uh, you know, either sex. And they have an agenda. And making money is typically their agenda or having some sort of influence, whether it's clout or whether it's your vote. Um, And so I wanted to highlight these particular issues in a healthy way. And, um, you know, you've probably seen how I've written it. I'm not coming from a place of, extreme bias or extreme partisanship. I'm trying to speak very matter of fact. And, and I wanted this to be something where anybody who's in the middle could understand my perspective, even if they disagree with some of the things I have to say, but they can understand the conclusion that I got there. And it's not because someone told me what to say. It's, it's clearly coming from data that I've researched and me thinking about this for a better part of a year of how we've made it to this point and how to discuss this in a healthy way. So uh, to answer your question, that's ultimately what got me started to even sit down and write this book and spend hours upon hours writing and editing.
0: It's quite a process, is it not, Adam? <laughs> it, yes. As yes. much work yes, as is. you as you know it to be, that's it's more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, a, it's just overwhelming, it is, it's a lot. Um, so yeah. I appreciate it cause it's, cause I know that it comes from a place of, um, goodness and needing to get this out and just feeling I can feel from it that it's similar to me in that you, you have to get the truth out. You have to, you can't just do nothing. It's too frustrating. Right, right. I, I'd rather go through the hell of writing a book than do nothing. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, especially the writing process was was uh, very emotional you know uh, there were there were parts of the book I, I don't know if you got to finish it all the way through, but you know there are parts of the book where I, if I go back and read it, it makes me cry because it's very personal and I wanted people to understand my perspective and understand where it's coming from and especially when I talk about trauma you know these are very That's, important things
0: to me. I'm gonna go ahead and have you, I was gonna ask you that later to tell a little bit about your story, but let's do that now since you just brought that up. Just okay. give people a little background about what that story is.
1: Sure, so um, I'm a product of a, a single-parent home. Um, my father, I would see him maybe once a year. Um, we would move around a lot um, and my father Ultimately, stayed in, uh, in the state of Michigan while we were moving around. So, inevitably, seeing us would be difficult just in general. But the effort to see us didn't exist. Um, you know, he would see us by convenience uh, because he was working and traveling. Uh, that was the only effort that he would put towards actually coming to see us. And when he was around, it was like having a stranger in your house. Um, I would get maybe the equal amount of phone calls a year, and the older I got, the less phone calls I received. Uh, The last time I saw him in person, I believe I was 16 years old. Um, That's the last time I saw him in person. The last time I actually spoke to him, I was 21. Um, And that was my attempt to try to establish some type of relationship with him as an adult. Um, Especially at that time, I was a new father. And it was like talking to a stranger. On the phone, and he had no interest in really having a conversation. So at that point, I said, "Why am I trying?" Um, you know, when that becomes your reality, uh, you know, your father disappears to not care about you. It's no wonder why I suffered a majority of my my childhood and my adult years with accepting myself uh, and, and experiencing depression. Um, always worried that people are going to Drop me, um, for lack of a better term, and wanting that acceptance, even if it was somewhat unhealthy, um, and unlike a lot of young men, um, you know, wanting that female acceptance as your replacement for your father's acceptance, um, you know, I wasn't around men just in general, and my mother never got married, so, you know, my acceptance became from relationships. And I, you know, I went through a bunch of relationships uh, that ultimately would fail consistently for various reasons and partially my fault. Um, but to, to kind of go back a little bit as far as my upbringing, um, you know, like I said, it, it was a single parent household. It was myself my sister and my mother and bouncing from home to home, state to state, sometimes living with family. And we've, we ended up homeless a couple of times Um, one time staying in a home shelter, another time we had a streak of just bouncing around from uh, hotel to hotel, uh, and one time staying with a stranger inside their trailer just to have a place to sleep. Meanwhile, I'm I'm going to school and trying to have some sort of normalcy, and it wasn't for my mother not trying, or my mother was lazy or anything, it was the opposite. My mother was doing everything that she knew to do.
0: That only one person can do
1: and what only one person can do um, so it was it was a heavy burden that was put on my mother because of the situation mm-hmm. and, and while my father was paying child support the government was taking that child support it wasn't willingly um, so you know that's why i lean very heavily talking about family and talking mm-hmm. about the black family because my life is an example of many black families that are experiencing this particular issue Um, and, and what I tried to make the parallel that it's not in particular, only a black issue. A lot of people of all races, all cultures experience this particular problem. The problem is that it's, it's prevalent with us.
0: And in fact, you wrote, um, in your book, quote, the greatest privilege in America is not being white. It's having a healthy mother and father in the home. And that sort of speaks to what you're saying. It's really not about color. I know that you focus in on becoming go, going from a black victim to a black victor, and we're going to get into how feminism has affected the black community. But at the end of the day, what really is driving you? I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that that family mm-hmm. unit,
1: regardless family of color? Unit, yeah, regardless of color. Um, and and what I try to do in this book. There are times where you notice I say black. And there's times where i don't mention race and yeah. i do that purposefully because i want the reader regardless of what color they are to understand that these are black issues but understand these are real issues that are happening all over the place the rate of single parent homes is going up for white people as well mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty high for hispanics as well and the type of problems that that we've ex- been experiencing for black households is now starting to be become somewhat mm-hmm. prevalent with white households you know the epidemic of boys feeling lost and feeling purposeless and then you start talking to them you find out that their father wasn't in their life mm-hmm. and they're struggling because of it and this this crosses cultural boundaries
0: no question about um, it yeah no question about it i mean your upbringing that you described was my somewhat of my husband's not the moving around in the homelessness part but just the not the having no father single mother doing all she could but it's not enough and Having so many mixed feelings about that, um, right. so yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's get into the meat of the book. You open with uh, a rather lengthy list of, I guess, rhetorical questions that you did purposefully. Right. I'm going to read some of them, just a few, because it's. I think you had several pages worth, and you can tell people why you did it that way. I thought that was kind of smart. Uh, why did it feel as if my birth created an inconvenience for my father and a burden for my mother? Why are black women forgiven for failing to select better men? If the greatest danger to, black, to a black man in America is the white man, then why, do, then why do the most successful black people choose to live among them? Why do we stay quiet when black men terrorize the innocent within our own communities, but speak loudly when one of these terrorists dies? Why are a third of our pregnant black women aborting their children? Why do we wait for the government to save us when we are capable of saving ourselves? why do we overlook the destructive role that government has played since the beginning? And then you wrote, these are valid questions that need to be asked without them. Black, Amerans, Black Americans will continue to be in a mental state of victimhood in America when I truly believe that we are victors. Um, and so I'm focusing this whole podcast episode on victimhood because that's what your book is about. Right. And the victimhood can be, can be, um, seen in various factions, depending on what, what the topic is, and we're going to get into those different topics, but, so why did you absolutely. open the book with those questions?
1: So, um, you know, funny enough, the introduction was the very last thing I wrote in the book, and I, and I, that's actually really smart.
0: I never did it that way, and I should have, that's a smart way of doing it, <laughs> seriously, I learned that um, the hard way.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, because the, the book went all in different directions. Mm. You know, as you know, as you're writing, you don't know what it's going to come out to. Um, but I, I knew that the introduction would be the last thing because it would explain the rest of the book. Yep. But these questions were legit questions that I've always asked myself uh, for, for years. And, and there were questions that I avoided asking even myself. And there were questions where I'm just like, you know, I'm suspicious of this. But I never vocalized it. I never said it because I knew the discussion of these particular questions is kind of, uh, you know, going against your own kind, going against your own culture, um, going against your own people, just to point out a flaw, you know? And I wanted the questions to be at the forefront because if you're someone who's Black, for example, and you say, all right, I'm gonna give this book a chance, and you read these questions and you're like, huh, I never thought of that. I never even thought of to ask this question. Or you're someone who says, I've asked the same question and I thought I was alone. And I, and I think uh, I like questions in general because questions aren't aren't solidifying anything. I'm asking you a question. You interpret it however you want to interpret it. And if I was to make a declaration, then I can be criticized. I can be harshly judged for making such a declaration. But if I ask a question, then, you have to interpret it however, which way you want to interpret it. You can think about it, you can disregard it, but you can't put that back on me. You now, you're now posed with the question. You have to ask yourself yeah. this question. And I, I wanted to do that to inspire thought, to set, a, uh, set uh, like a groundwork as you go through the book. And as you go through the book, that question will pop up in your head when you're reading certain things.
0: Okay, so you open the book talking about an honesty gap. I love the way you put that. So I've got a lot of different quotes here. I'm just going to read what you said and then let you expound. Quote, in America, we have a glaringly obvious gap in honesty when we talk about culture. We are too afraid of being honest with ourselves because the truth appears offensive, but it is real. We purposely hide from the reality because it hurts our good-natured sensibilities but in many cases it hurts us by not having a realistic perspective. We promote ideologies and policies based on lies that make us feel good, but hold no real world value. And anyone who's been following me for some time will know why I wanted you on because that's literally my message. (laughs) I mean, like exactly my point that saying things that make people feel good is mean. It's not nice. People think they're being nice. No, they're hurting the person by covering up the truth. And I don't believe in that. I'm all about the no holds barred truth. If you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you to help you, even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, ultimately that's how you get the problem solved. Right. And so clearly you agree. And that's the argument that you're making here is that we're going to get into some really heavy duty stuff here, not to make you feel bad, but because that's how you solve it
1: exactly and and you know i think one of the most taboo things to do is when we you know if we want to have this discussion about race if people really care about race and i and i try to make the argument that not everything is about race most of it is about culture mm-hmm. okay you want to have the conversation about race let's talk race let's talk figures let's talk facts why is it that like you said a third of black pregnancies turn into abortions why is it that half of the violent crimes are committed by someone that looks like myself? 6% black male demographic commits half of the violent crimes. Why is this the case? These are very uncomfortable things to discuss. And, and, I, and I make it very clear, there's nothing inherently violent about me, about my black skin. It's quite the opposite. It's the culture the culture that that we grow up in the culture that we're surrounded by the culture that we subscribe to and it's the influences that push that culture along and and while the hyper-violent that are creating this chaos within our communities and and across and, and communities and they happen to be black what happens is we are so we are so attached to our blackness that we are afraid to call out these clearly bad people. It would be like if Muslims were afraid to call out ISIS. You know, you should call it ISIS because they're bastardizing your culture, your people. Mm -hmm. And and we should be able to do the same thing with these people who are clearly doing wrong. And we show more sympathy for the men who, who violate others who go to jail and we say there are too many black men locked up in jail as if someone did it to them rather than they didn't do it to themselves. And it's that robbing of agency also that, that is. And yeah, Sorry, I just that, want
0: to point out, as opposed to the concerns about what about all the black people who are being killed by their own people? Right, right. And, if you're and really I, concerned I, about t- black lives, if that's your real concern is black lives, why isn't your focus there?
1: Right, and the focus there, and it has a lot to do with not looking at your own flaws. You know, it's there is this, um, there's this, and that's where it comes back to victimhood. You know, when you're a victim, no one holds you accountable. And when someone does try to hold you accountable, you get upset, you get angry that they're dare calling you out because I'm a victim. How dare you say that? You know, so when you talk about black and black crime, they say, hey, but I'm black and we have a history of racism and I'm victimized and I'm oppressed. And it's all these things to shy you away from the reality that you're partly responsible for the outcome. It's uncomfortable to say that although George Floyd died in a very dubious way, in a very unfortunate Mm -hmm. manner, and no one advocates for his death, he is partly responsible for his outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, when we look at at all these different scenarios, I mean, we can go down the list. And and when you actually dissect them, um, like Michael Brown, for example, who stole something, who assaulted a police officer, and then was ultimately shot when the police officer was defending himself. These are things that if Michael Brown just went to the store and bought something and went home, he would be alive today.
0: We're gonna get into the la- the connection between this and feminism later, but it's the same argument with women who um, are raped when they got sloppy drunk or barely clothed and walked into an environment that would potentially allow that to happen. It doesn't mean right. that it's okay for it to happen. It means you had an option before you ever took those steps to begin with. And had you not right. taken those steps, you wouldn't be raped. So it's very tricky right. territory in, the society today, as you know, to even talk about this in this way that we're doing right now.
1: Right. And 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 one time I had a a conversation with someone talking about Black incarceration and basically telling you the same thing. And they said, it sounds like you're victim shaming
0: yeah you know, right, right. and those,
1: those are the words that you get yep. and, and, and I'm saying, well why are you robbing that person of agency there's a there's a plethora of decisions that someone makes before it even comes to the point where a cop even dares to shoot them
0: they had empo- they could have been empowered before if we're allowed exactly. to say that exactly. right
1: exactly exactly um and and ultimately you know to, to go back to victimhood the the victimhood narrative and when people fall into that victimhood narrative they're willfully giving up their agency they're giving up their power and there is power with being accountable because if you're the one who's at fault that means that you're the one who can change it and there's power within that but we don't preach that anymore we don't preach victorhood we don't preach overcoming your scenario despite the odds despite the world around you and and that's one ultimate message that I want to get through is that we're not these unfortunate historical, uh, you know, losers in America that we are portrayed to be. We're not, our history isn't just surrounded by our servitude or by our oppression. We've contributed far more things that people want to give credit to, to this country if you want to look purely based on race. And the idea that our history and our existence is based on what other people have given us rather than what we've done for ourselves is utterly offensive to my sensibilities.
0: I had some other things I was gonna talk about first, but I have to go right into the, um, the, the feminism stuff because it, everything yeah. you're saying is so applicable. Um, and yeah. it's a, partly applicable because you know the feminist movement piggybacked originally off of the civil rights movement and tried to exactly. parallel a legitimate oppressive environment at one point in time in America for Black Americans, i.e. slavery, to mm-hmm. women supposedly being oppressed by men, which is totally insulting on its face, in my opinion. They're not even comparable. Mm-hmm. There is no comparison. But they were able right. to do that, and they use all those arguments that you're using right now for the Black community can be easily used for the feminist community, the feminist world, and they, they piggyback off of all those same ideals. Only they've been extremely successful, um, first with white women, And now, and we're going to let you get into all this with the black community because it was not initially that way. It was—it's feminism was a white women's movement in every way, starting in the sixties, and then it Mm -hmm. eventually trickled down and um, and and infiltrated the black community. Maybe even in a bigger way after reading your book and also listening to Kevin Samuels. Do you know who that is?
1: Absolutely. Yep. Well, I haven't met
0: him yet, but I—he's—he's mentioned me on his podcast a few times. I've watched some of his stuff, and it's just it's such a, um, gosh, I've been writing about this for years, but I never delved into it, how it's affected the black community. But now after listening to him and reading your stuff, it's just one and the same. It's just the same stuff with a different community. Um, right. Okay, so we're gonna get into that. You have a section called Feminism and Fatherhood is what you named it. Um, mm-hmm. And you you talk in there about women's superiority complex, which was a great way of describing it because you're basically, explaining how feminism has taught, once again, as you're pointing out in the black community, black women to think and feel as though they are superior. But again, we could cross out black women to feel that they are superior to men and that men are less than. So it's ironically a flip of what they argued originally was happening, even though it was never happening, which is that men thought women were less than, which was never actually true anyway. Mm -hmm. But they argued that that was the thing and now they flipped it as though that makes it equal, right? so that women right, are less right, than, exactly. men are less than women. Um, okay, so you wrote, quote, feminism claims to identify things that make women resent men, but all it does is manufacture what is not there. Bingo. The major lie that feminists tell their new members is that they're inherently victims and will always be victims. And they purposely seek out people who have traumatic backgrounds like a broken home or being a survivor of abuse. These people don't need convincing that they're victims, they just need to know who the perpetrator is. Feminism allows for victims to find their perpetrator and gives them the tool of ideological hatred to feed their victimhood. And then you lead into how it gave women a a narcissistic superiority complex to go along with it. And why don't you explain what that is? I have some quotes, but I'll let you explain it first, what you mean by that.
1: So what I mean by uh, a set of uh, narcissism. It's the it's the idea that um, you know I use the phrases in the, or, the, or the words in the book uh, queen, boss, um, you know diva. These are words that are just synonymous when it comes to black women, and it's perfectly fine. And it's it's a constant pick me up. And you know I I have. I have issue with calling people queens as if they're royalty, as if they're superior. And same thing with, I would never want to be called a king as well. You know, that's that's an unearned title to kind of throw at someone just because they were born with a certain, uh, you know, genitalia and skin color. And, and it's this, this uh, ideological framework of you are something special your your uh, you know your magic, your black girl magic, you know all of these things that we throw at black women, but there's there's a particular purpose why it even made it to the point that it is today, because, like you said, the feminist movement was a majority white movement in the very beginning i 'm not necessarily pointing out any type of conspiracy, but what i'm i 'm just giving like a, a time frame um, post 1960s when they started uh, incentivizing women to separate from the men uh, with government subsidies, Uh whether it be welfare and things of that nature. What that started to do, and granted, not every Black person was on welfare, obviously, but that started to shift the culture, and that started to shift the importance of men. Um, On top of that, you, you continue that constant repetition over decades. What ends up happening is that the men disappear and the men disappear from a role of of family authority, of importance. And now you have a feminist movement that has been winning and winning and winning over the decades. And they are gravitating towards anything and anyone that has power. So the Black woman overwhelmingly has monetary power, uh, family power, reproductive power. She has power within the Black community. So they're going to pander and use her for everything that she's worth to get what they want. And they wanna carry that narrative, despite it actually hurting black women Mm -hmm. and, and women in general. So they're going to say that it's okay that you're big bones. It's okay that you weigh more than a man does your height. It's okay, you're still beautiful. But when black women are the highest demographic of people in the United States with diabetes, they are the fattest demographic. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the percentage sad.
0: was. I know it's huge. Yeah, it's it's
1: over half. Over half of Black women are are, are obese. obese.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, and not even overweight, obese. Yeah, and and this these are things that are extremely concerning, but they're extremely taboo to even bring up. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to criticize those who are in power, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. So we don't we don't. And not necessarily saying you have to shame people, but we don't even question or criticize that particular thing because they are the ones in control. They are the ones in power.
0: Well, I like actually the paragraph. I actually have right here a paragraph on that very word. I wrote it. I called it the death of shame. And I thought it was because I want to read what you wrote here about that. And I think there's something, shame is a strong word. And it's definitely taboo today. I prefer the word stigma. I think I think we should bring back some form of stigma for certain things to let the message be known that they are not good for you and they're not good for society. Not stigma as in you should feel bad about yourself. Um, I feel like there's a, there's a middle ground between the old days of you have a, a scar on your chest if you're divorced or something from way back when to uh, whatever, anything mm-hmm. goes. The, you need some stigma to reach that middle ground where you don't <coughs> marginalize them, but at the same time Keep the standards high, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, you wrote. Exactly, exactly. You wrote, feminism has removed the societal border control we call shame. No woman is allowed to feel bad for her actions because her actions are legitimate or not her fault. Have as much, as, have as much unprotected sex as you want because it, subs, it subsides your loneliness. No shame in that. Eat as much as you want because emotional eating is emotionally healing. No shame in that birth as many children as with as many men as you want because you're the queen of your body. No shame in that. Kill as many unborn children as you want because you're not you're just not ready to be accountable for your actions just yet. No shame in that. When we shame nothing, we accept everything.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's it's the it's not even necessarily the returning of me shaming someone else, but the rejection of feeling ashamed. Yes. You know there right. are certain things yeah. that that, that you know, if I do something, if I go out and kill someone, I should be ashamed that I took someone's life. So no one should come over and pat me on the back and say, well, you had a tough childhood. Right. And I understand how you got, no, you're like, okay. no, right. you're removing my responsibility, my accountability, and you're you're leaving me in a state of not being capable of changing.
0: Yep. Right. You'll perpetuate more of that without, you need that stigma or shame or whatever you want to call it. To, to grow and move forward. I'm, I'm showing my, I'm showing my um, private life here, but so I, I've written about it before. My, I love the Waltons. So my husband and I still watch the Waltons and we raised our kids on the Waltons and the Little House in the Prairie. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. is that there are these timeless messages that apply just as much today as they did a hundred years ago, because it's about human nature, oh. right? It's not about what era you live in. And I just watched one the other day um, about this very word, and i can 't remember what the situation was, but the child felt chained for something she had done, and none of the adults relieved that for her they didn't they didn't they embraced her um and helped her through it, but they did not relieve that shame. they left it there. you could tell it was it was meant that was good that she was feeling shame and then let 's move forward right. now, right there's a part two to that is that we move on
1: right, exactly. And, and what I'm trying to, to do is highlight the missing amount of shame that comes into play, um, you know, in, in especially surrounding feminism. Because now uh, it's okay if you wear basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, you know, I, 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 wrote, I wrote a comment on Facebook to someone when we were talking about OnlyFans, and I, I said I never thought I would see the day where prostitution would be casual. And, and it's the removal of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for these young women who want to get caught up in selling themselves. And the vast majority of these women who sign up for these services make very little money and you're selling yourself for $5. And, and it's that removal of shame that would allow a woman to think that she has a particular a particular monetary number set on her body. And, and it's that removal of shame that, that keeps her doing that and, and, and she doesn't see that in the future when now she's older and her body doesn't look the same way it did when she was 21. And she sees how everyone treats her differently and now how everyone judges her because of what she did years ago. And that shame that I'm talking about prevents her from making it to that point.
0: Yeah. It prevents
1: her from doing something because, you know, you can go, and it, it, you know what, have at it, go and become a prostitute but you know what? Don't tell me as a man to accept it. You know, that's just how it is. And when you say uh, women's liberation, go ahead and do whatever you want and have no regard for any of your, any of your actions, you're not accountable for it. Then what you're ultimately doing is setting up women for failure, especially Mm -hmm. as they get older, Mm -hmm. you know, you're leaving them lonely. you're, Mm -hmm. You're leaving them, um, victimized you're leaving them in, in a very fragile state and, and it ultimately hurts them and, and, yeah
0: and i want to talk about something that is really um parallel to what i do with my coaching you, you basically talk about what happens with the man the woman in their relationship um when you talked about lost girls and i'm going to come back to the what you wrote about the epidemic of lost children because that's so important and i want to i don't want to miss that But when you talked specifically about girls, you wrote that, uh, and you were referring basically to girls who didn't have fathers or they had them, but they didn't have a good relationship or what have you. And you said, when lost girls have no foundational understanding of unconditional fatherly love, they mistake sex with love and believe that love is conditional on their sexual promiscuity, speaking of promiscuity. So they associate sex with getting the love that they didn't get from their dad, I think is what you were saying there. Um, so that's exactly. one issue that, that has to do with what we're talking about, with why promiscuity is so rampant in addition to the loss of shame is what's lacking in going back to the family again. What you didn't get from your opposite sex parent is now being played out in your adult relationships with men.
1: Exactly. And and while that might be anecdotal, I, I've met far too many people. Uh, well, actually, let's be specific. I've met far too many women when you start to ask them questions about their upbringing, you know, uh, did you get along with your father? Mm -hmm. And you start finding out, well, our our relationship is very tumultuous. Oh, Mm -hmm. he wasn't there. Oh, I don't know who my father is. And you start seeing the type of men that they choose.
0: Yep.
1: Over and over and over. And, And it's not, you know, and I'm coming from a place where I understand why their compass is completely off because their father is supposed to be there to model the direction that they're supposed to head towards. And when they don't have a direction as far as who's the type of person that they should appropriate with or should even be attracted to, they're ultimately gonna be taken advantage by by men who are extremely alpha, who are manipulative, who, you know, all, all of these guys who want to take from women rather than providing something that is healthy for her like a healthy father figure for her potential children. And it just it just perpetuates the cycle.
0: Okay, and another thing that can happen as a result of that, as you wrote in the book, was this. Quote, it is the ignorance of believing she is a surrogate of masculine energy rather than the embodiment of feminine beauty. Popular black culture instructs young black women throughout this country to act in a manner that repels masculine men and attracts feminized men that offer no future prospects for relationship or fatherhood. Go, this would be the opposite of the alpha male that you were saying. This, they're attracting the opposite kind because of because they're so masculinized, right? She is encouraged to outwardly express her emotional pain by being combative, manipulative, and doubtful with men. Black culture never tells her to show restraint in her behavioral mannerisms, nor does it mind if she continually escalates it to a position of unattractiveness. And this is definitely not a black woman issue. <laughs> 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 definitely not. People listening are going, um, right. no, that's universal. That's right, the issue right. of feminism, right? doesn't matter whether you're black or white. That's the message As you've been masculine. And it's not just click culture, but like we were saying, if you grew up without that strong fatherly figure, you're supplanting the masculinity you didn't get and you're taking it on. For example, if you could never apply, if you, sorry, if you could never count on your dad for something, you erroneously conclude as a child that, well, I guess I have to just count on myself because I can't depend on a man. So then you become that man. You do, you do the providing, exactly. the protecting yourself. Exactly. And this is now rampant in the black community, and they're finding men who, are, um, who need them as mothers, right? Who, the, the men who, the opposite of the alphas, um, who, who have not grown up, and they're attracting that type.
1: Well, and, and, and also just to clarify, so I, I say feminized men. So I have a, a particular definition of feminized men. Okay. So while you know, we have a culture of calling them simps, where they just bow down to a woman and do whatever she wants, but there are other forms of feminized men. When I, when I say feminized men, I also mean the guys who appear masculine, but are extremely sensitive. So they're the guys who say, what are you looking at? You know who jump in someone's face, who who are very off balance, and they don't know what being masculine is, and mm-hmm. they're playing a character. Yep. And, and they would they would much rather uh, fight someone than deescalate because they think that because this is what masculine men do. So they're they're kind of like a, a caricature. They're playing a role um, as to what they think that they're supposed to be playing, but these guys also take. Their self worth into how many women they can sleep with. Uh, they take worth into the value of the woman that they're able to catch um, purely based off of appearance, but they have no objective to stay around. Um, you know, these are clearly men who aren't ready to procreate and to be fathers because they don't know how to be a father. So, as much as we can talk about certain women push men away who are good men. Mm-hmm. There is an issue where there are good women who are who are practicing this behavior, but they're attracting men who aren't suitable fathers. You know, the guy who's on the corner doing nothing with himself is clearly not a provider. He's clearly not a guy who will you know be your emotional support or be any anywhere comfortable uh, with you as far as a husband. Um, but he's great as a sex partner, mm-hmm. you know, and and, and so. The women don't even use that as a cautionary tale because it doesn't matter if he sticks around because I'm the mother, I'm the father, I'm the provider, I'm the nurturer, and she has no interest in even caring who gets her pregnant. It's laissez-faire kind of attitude.
0: Um, You, and that's, I think part of your point is that we aren't expecting women, well, black women or white women, but just women to look for better traits in men. In other words, exactly. they gotta be responsible for who they're choosing. So you can't get exactly. with a man like that and say, well, look, he's not doing crap, so I'm gonna do it all and I have to, and then we come in this mother figure in the relationship, but you chose him. Exactly. And why did you choose him? That, that is worthy of asking.
1: And see, this goes back to the questions. It's the question of why. What made you open up your legs for this particular man? What indicated that he is someone of value that you should allow inside your body? You know, from, for women, it is sex and in some ways is intrusive. It, it takes a level of comfort to be with someone. Mm-hmm. And we tell women that it doesn't matter. And and it's that uh, disregard for what penis enters your body that that just leads them down uh, all types of hurt, uh, all types of uh, trauma, all Mm -hmm. of these negative negative things that come up in their life. And all we're trying to do is say, maybe you should be a little bit more selective. Maybe being alone is a little bit better than accepting this guy that if he gets you pregnant, that won't be around or puts you in the position to decide if your child should be born or not. And these are these are real things that that come into play.
0: They are real things. They're heavy things, and they're right. uh, They're everyday things. We don't we don't even we just don't even talk about them. Period. Right. Again, going back to your point, because you're not supposed to expect something of a victim. Right. If you're always in a victim mode, there's nothing you can do about it. That's the mentality. And it's totally right. disempowering. And, completely disempowering. That's always been my argument about feminism all along. It's a complete lie. <laughs> they're telling you that they're gonna empower you, while at the same time saying, but you're a victim of oppressed, of an oppressive society. How does that compute?
1: And the, and the thing about feminism in general that I've always found hilarious is that they tell you that men are bad uh, and everything about men's nature is bad. But in order to be successful in
0: life, you have to act like a man, behave like a man. <laughs> you live, live your life like a man. Otherwise, you're live less than life like a man. <laughs> Makes exactly. no sense. Okay, so before it gets lost on me, I just want to go back real quick to the epidemic of lost children, because I, um, a couple of weeks ago, had Erica Komisar on, um, and the title of the episode was, I think, Are You a Product of Emotional Neglect? And that's what I thought of when I read this, because really, there's no way to listen to that. I encourage everybody to go back a few um, episodes and, and listen to that if you haven't when when you get to the end of it there's no way that you can't come away thinking my god i mean this nation is just saturated in very very um damaged people literally damaged people i was going to say broken but i don't like that word you know just very damaged people and who are not capable of connecting with other humans and it's a really it's a massive, massive, I consider it the biggest problem in America, which, of course, nobody wants to address because it's too uncomfortable. <laughs> but anyway, here, so here's what you wrote. Quote, while the focus of my book tends to revolve around the black community, there is an epidemic of lost children in America in general. Being lost in society has nothing to do with race or culture. White males are responsible for the majority of mass school shootings, but they share something else in common, fatherless homes. The prison system is filled with lost black boys that were incarcerated after exhibiting reckless lost boy behavior. Our military is filled with lost boys looking for direction voluntarily, and some experience for the first time a strong, positive male role model while in the military. So, what all of these things have in common, no matter what the group is, is the lack of a father figure, or not even father figure, sorry, just father absence in general, and no modeling for how the heck to go from being a boy to a man. And the results are what we have today. It's I consider it literally like the the biggest crisis in America today.
1: I think so too. And, and uh, you know, and also I'm I'm sure you're aware of uh, Warren Farrell, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, his book detailing the boy crisis was extremely impactful. Mm -hmm. um, Just on the topic alone. Um, I I actually want to use an example. Uh, I I write about him. His name is Philip. Uh, Philip is a, he's in his 70s, he's a white male, he's a veteran, right? And he's someone that I feel so, I feel um, a complete understanding of where he's coming from. Uh, you know, he's, he's a conservative and we started talking because we were in conservative circles, but we just started talking on a human to human level. And on its face, it sounds like me and him should have nothing in common. We didn't grow up in the same type of environment. We didn't grow up in the same type of music. But when we started talking about our childhood, that feeling of loss, that feeling of um, not knowing where to go or what to do, that was one of the reasons why he joined the military. Mm-hmm. You know, he had no idea what he'd do with himself. And, and at least I knew who my father was. He has no idea to this day who his father is. And imagine going 70 years and not knowing who your other half is or what that person's like, or you know, what, which way you should actually lean towards in life. And, and having to basically sign up with the government to put your life at risk, mm-hmm. just to have another man say, hey, this is how to be a man, and try to give you some sort of direction. And, and that is something that we don't really discuss, um, when, especially when we talk about the military. No. While it is an honor to serve your country, there are many young men who are going there. They don't have a strong father at home or a father no, at all.
0: That was and the... And, sorry, go ahead. And
1: they're looking for okay. no, it's okay. That and, was, and they're just looking for the general direction.
0: That was the theme of the officer and a gentleman. You remember that movie way back when? But that the, yeah. the the two men who went in there or the one specifically was you know, didn't have a good father at all. So that was really clear in that film. Um, yeah, I mean, I my husband explains it better than I do. Cause I don't, my story isn't his story, but you know, he will explain about the feeling of you, ha- it's, you've lost your mooring. There is no, there's no groundedness. There's no, um, center. And so you're constantly grappling for, um, for that, uh, the other people who have both parents in their lives, a relationship with both parents take that for granted. Um, I think, Absolutely. um, but people who are products of divorce, are, are floundering, maybe, is that the right word? In a way that yeah. people whose parents stay married don't. Um, I don't know, he and I have a lot of discussions about, about this, but um, he, it'd be better if he were sitting right here, actually. You could. I bet you and he would have a lot in common. But go ahead.
1: No, and, and um, in one of the solution chapters, what I refer to it as the purpose compass? You know, your father is someone who's supposed to help you stay on your path, on your direction in life. And it was one of those things I really realized the older my son got, um, you know, he's now 15 years old, and probably for the past few years, we've discussed what does he want to do after he's done with school. And, and, And not to give him pressure, but just to have him think about it. And, you know, he wants to do animation. And I didn't have to tell him what to do. He came with it on his own. And, and so now, for me as a father, is to lead him on a path to success with the, the goal that he has in mind and, and not to veer him in a direction that is misleading. So I don't tell him that he's the greatest ever and that he's definitely <laughs> going to make it. I tell him that, hey, this is very competitive and you <laughs> might fail and that's okay. But what we're going to do is you know he wants to move to Japan after he's done with school you know I started giving him Japanese lessons I started to um, buy him uh, equipment to do drawings I started doing everything to harness his purpose and the purpose that he wanted to to go towards now if my son says I want to hit the streets and I want to hang out with my boys and I want to do this then I would say "Uh "Uh-uh, you need to stay back on your purpose Mm -hmm. I'm his compass i'm his moral arbiter and i'm his i'm his authority figure to keep him from falling off track yeah and and it's that it's that purpose compass that is missing for a lot of these young men
0: and i guess that's where that you said you started out angry when you were writing this but you came out empathetic and i i think this is what you mean that And this is certainly how I feel when it comes to when I teach and work with young women about how to construct lives that are completely different from everything they've been taught from day one because if they follow that path they're gonna fail so here's the right path right I don't I'm not mad that they're making the decisions they're making I feel empathy where the hell else were they expect what do we expect when we've fed them the crap of course where are they gonna learn how to be married where are they gonna learn um how to construct a life that actually works rather than one that just looks pretty on paper, but then you realize 10 years in isn't working at all. It's giving them that hard information. So I think that's what you meant when you said turning empathetic, where what do you expect people who have no dad, of course these men are lost.
1: Exactly. You can't expect and that, and that the was, same
0: result from somebody who's got the dad from somebody who doesn't.
1: And that's what I realized as I was writing it. Um, and, and and actually, as as a little note, um, I started writing it uh, maybe like a month or so after George Floyd's passing. But around November, I started rereading what I had wrote in August, for example, and I sounded very angry, and my voice had changed. Mm-hmm. And so I had actually erased everything I wrote pre-November because, I, one, I figured out the direction I was going, and two, I, uh, as I started writing, I, I became understanding why we're in this predicament. I understand the amount of manipulation. I understand the the narrative that is constantly forced. And I talk about how I was once a victim to this narrative, how I believed some of these narratives, not all of them, but some of them. And, and it wasn't until I broke out of that mindset of being the victim, mindset of being the victimized, that I started to see the world for what it was. How did
0: you do that? I meant to ask you about that. When was your you know, aha moment, or maybe it was a series of aha moments, but what happened?
1: It was, it was a series of aha moments. And and I think a lot of it comes with just general maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my twenties were chaotic. Um, you know, I would have a job and then I would, um, at one point I had a pretty decent paying job, a union job, and I was absolutely miserable in it. Uh, I eventually lost that job, went on unemployment, um, this was around the 2008 crash. Uh, so unemployment was extremely high and it took a, a probably 10 months before I received any type of monetary funding um, because I had to fight it and appeal. And mm-hmm. so I ended up taking a job where I made half the amount of money that I did before. And so I was ultimately, uh, and, and then shortly after that, uh, I had my car repossessed because I couldn't afford to pay for the car like I did at my other job. So I was living in my friend's basement. I was overweight. I was, uh, you know, waking up every day surrounded by his cats, no girlfriend, and, you know, feeling like a failure as a father. Uh, you know, even though I'm seeing my son, I'm, I'm not modeling something that's healthy. You know, I'm waking up in the morning and drinking Coca-Cola. I'm just, I'm just a complete depressed mess. And, you know, I, I think about my mother and I think about what she went through and how she was able to overcome it. And there was never that moment to really completely give up. I knew I had to do it in spite of all the challenges that were at hand. I knew I had to do it for my son and I knew I had to do it for myself. And uh, over the, the following years was me, uh, you know, leaving one job, finding another job that was a little bit more money. A little bit more money until finally i found that one job that i've been looking for for years which allowed for me my career to break out and i am uh, and, and and really flourish and get that experience that i needed um to end up to the point where i am today where i'm not living check to check and i'm not suffering um and and it was that was an it uh,
0: right is that what you said right. you're not it
1: yep and and it was having to go through those moments And and also including, I I was homeless for a short period of time as well in my twenties, as an adult, um, and having to get help from my coworkers at the time to pay for a hotel for me to stay at, so I wasn't sleeping in my car. It was all these things that that led me to the to overcome and and keep fighting.
0: Um, Let's end on that on that note. Where I just I was just remembering something I think I heard you say, and I really liked the way you described it. That. there was, having been homeless twice, or whatever it was, two or three times, and having any experiences like that where you're at rock bottom is actually a blessing. Because what has it yeah. allowed you to do now? What, what, who are you now as a result of that, that you might not have been had you not experienced that?
1: So I, I described it to someone as being fearless. If everything was to disappear tomorrow, it would suck, but I know that I would overcome it, I would survive, and I'll and I'll um, keep moving forward. And a lot of people live their life in comfort. They've never experienced, you know, uh, you know, whether it be food insecurity, housing insecurity, they've never experienced that. They've always had surety that they're going to fall asleep at night, be comfortable and not have any problem, uh, not have a problem. And America is extremely comfortable in comparison to the Mary. rest of the world. Yeah. And so when we talk about cancel culture, for example, You have far too many people who are very comfortable with their situation Mm -hmm. and not willing to stick out their neck because they don't want to lose that comfort. And it's the reason why, one of the reasons why, I felt comfortable enough to show my face to you on the internet and write a book and put my name on it and not use a pseudonym. I wanted to do that to prove a point that if I can do that, anybody can do that. You know, it just took almost a year of sitting down and writing And even though I've never written a book, I knew that I could do it. And all it takes is for people to speak up. If you see something that's wrong, you speak up. If you want to be heard, write about it, say something about it, and don't be afraid of other people who are chastising you or or that threat of someone coming after you. That just means that you're doing something right.
0: Amen, amen. That's that's an awesome place to end it, Adam. I couldn't agree more. Well, I'm glad you put your name on the book. (laughs) then i wouldn't have anybody to interview (laughs) yeah awesome it was really really nice meeting you and thank you very much for writing this book i encourage everybody to go out and get a copy please tell them again where they can do that
1: uh the title of the book is black victim to black victor you can purchase it on amazon uh you can purchase it on barnes noble or you can simply go to www.blackvictim2victor.com and there's links there to purchase it or you can purchase a signed copy for myself uh, which i am currently doing Um, and i appreciate i appreciate all the support that i've been getting so far as someone who's independent and um and and trying to find their voice Um, and also just to add i'm also the founder of Wrong Speak publishing um, and so love, we the to do,
0: love the name, love the name, say it again very clearly so everybody heard that.
1: Wrong speak publishing, and so we try to counter the narrative, and we try to write very intellectual, open, honest, deep thinking articles. Uh, most of them are written by myself, but I'm, I'm advocating for other people to have a voice. Uh, you know, I'm allowing people to write anonymously, but I would much rather people speak and use their name, use their picture, you know, don't Absolutely. be afraid. Don't be afraid of the people that are
0: around. The picture is so important and the name, it's just, it, it's, it's night and day. And I want to okay. also encourage people to remember that don't be dismayed, but not dismayed, but don't be put off by the black victim to black victor title because the parallels, it just it just doesn't matter whether what color you are is what I'm trying to say. It just applies across the board. So don't think it doesn't apply to you if you're, if you're not among the black community. That's all I'm saying yes exactly fair 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 uh, analysis yeah yeah Yeah. awesome okay adam thank you thank you thank you for coming on and uh, best of luck to you you. i I really appreciate it you're welcome and that ends this hour of the suzanne banker show don't forget to continue the conversation on facebook by typing in the facebook search bar the suzanne banker show also please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it and don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you are now using Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at suzanne at the Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.